When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Emma Dowling about the care crisis, what caused it, and how can we end it. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Great to be here. This is an incredibly urgent book, uh, both, I think, in in terms of its subject, uh, the care crisis, but also, um, you know, literally right now and the past year that we've lived through um, because of the pandemic. And, and I guess the place to start is is probably um, thinking about what the care crisis is. Um, and I wonder if you could um, introduce the the title, really, and, and and sort of say a bit about what the crisis is. Absolutely. Um, I guess probably what to say is when I began working on the book, the motivation was was really to make visible a growing care crisis that was affecting more and more people, especially after the global financial crisis in Britain and with sort of onslaught of austerity and um, and things like that. And so the care crisis really there was something that um, for people who were working uh, across the, the care sector, it was very, very much tangible and something that they, they felt and they saw every day. And certainly for people who were trying to access care uh, or for people with unpaid caring uh, responsibilities, uh, it was a situation in which for them trying to um, either access care, uh, get the care that they need to, to live well was becoming increasingly difficult and also the conditions under which people were providing care, both paid and unpaid, were also increasingly difficult. At the same time, this was something that... um, was being t- spoken about, but nonetheless was something that was kind of there in the in the background a lot of the time as other things and other ways of thinking about uh, society and the economy always seemed to be more and more, more important. And and then kind of when the when the pandemic hit, it became much more visible uh, the the care crisis that had been there for a long time beforehand. And I think one of the things is to say that 
sort of on the one hand thinking about the care crisis it's a uh, an erosion or an exhaustion of societal caring capacities to put it on a sort of general level but that means something very concrete for people who need care and for people who are providing care so the basic definition really would be the sort of inability of people to access the care they need but also uh, doing so uh, providing care under difficult conditions at the same time care needs are also increasing so on the one hand, we had a situation, particularly in adult social care prior to the pandemic, where already, according to organisations like Age UK, 1.4 million people were not getting the care they needed. But at the same time, because of ageing and demographic changes, there are more, more and more people are needing care. So uh, we have a situation in which uh, really this, this care crisis is being exacerbated from, from, many, uh, from many sides. I mean, you, you mentioned the pandemic and it, it was incredibly um, sort of poignant, I, I guess, reading um, the underlying issues that, that the book grapples with in the context of a pandemic that, as you've mentioned, has, has really sort of uh, brought them um, in, into sharp relief, I guess, across society, which has tried to make uh, these questions of, of care unseen or, or hidden or, you know, not brought them to uh, the forefront of, of societal discussions. And, and quite early on, you, you grapple with that around the idea of care being something that is kind of unseen, um, hidden, you know, or, or actually deliberately sort of occluded. Um, and, and I guess um, you also take a particular uh, feminist perspective. Um, and so I wonder if you could kind of expand on, on what you, you'd mentioned already as a motivation for the book, which is this idea about care being unseen, hidden, and, and what the feminist perspective on that is? Hmm. Well, we live in a society where um, sort of the, the dominant kind of ideas or the dominant way of looking at society is uh, and looking at the economy is to look at uh, that part of the economy that is considered productive, you know, there where, um, where services and goods are are produced, but also this kind of heralding or celebrating of autonomy and, and independence. These are the sorts of uh, things that are put centre stage and in the kind of day-to-day -day going about of our everyday lives. And we don't really think so much about, or many people don't think so much about what are all the background conditions that are, that are necessary for the economy to function and for us to reproduce our livelihoods. And that's really where the feminist uh, perspective shines the spotlight to say, well, there's all sorts of work being done, often unpaid, um, many times also underpaid if it is paid, that is really absolutely necessary to sustain life and livelihoods. But it's sort of there in the, the background. It's, it goes unseen. It's not considered to have much value, nor is it considered to be particularly skilled. So, um, and it's relied on and it's and it's absolutely necessary, but it's sort of not not really considered to be that that important. Of course, also, it has traditionally been seen as as a as a woman's job, as something that is feminized. Um, this is something that, that women do. Um, it's part of the kind of culturally ascribed role. Um, and because it's not considered productive, it's sort of there uh, there in the in the background. And I guess there's also something about the ways in which it's it's sort of seen 
as assistive labor you know in, the, in a way it's also supposed to go unseen if it's if it's done if it's done well um so i think there's also that kind of aspect to it um uh, that plays a role and i guess this sort of sort of idea that it doesn't have much value is also kind of embedded in a whole economy because actually even though uh, it's considered not to be to not to have much value it's actually so necessary it's a very high cost and so all sorts of ways i think a sort to keep that cost low whether that's in terms of relying on uh people's sense of responsibility empathy um a sense of sort of public service to to kind of also often keep things going against the odds it's often sort of shunted into kind of moral registers or or personal registers or on the other hand also um the kind of labor market vulnerabilities to put to put in a sort of technical term sort of uh, also um are relied on so class uh, gender ethnicity and migration status are all sorts of ways in which these these costs are, are kept low i think i think that point of you know about keeping costs low or um, I guess the sort of, yeah, you know, trying to um, place um, responsibilities um, onto particular groups and, and, and effectively not, you know, compensate them or, or pay them um, or indeed, you know, treat them with uh, dignity and, and, and kind of social status is, is one of the things the book tries to sort of grapple with as a series of political choices um, and indeed a series of, um, you know, cho- choices within organizations as, as well as um, political choices and this you, you know you mentioned the kind of um, growing uh, need for care because of demographic change often particular voices usually associated with the right will talk about you know well everybody's getting older this high demand you know these are te- essentially kind of technical problems but but I think the book tries to stress how not just in, in the UK but actually you know uh, more globally and, and kind of interconnectedly, um, we've ended up with a care crisis because of particular political choices. And one of these political choices is austerity um, and the kind of transformation of the welfare state. Um, and, I, and I guess the sense of austerity, um, it's in the UK, at least there are claims that, you know, austerity is finished and now, you know, the spending taps have been turned on, none of which is true. Obviously, austerity is very much still with us. But But it'd be interesting to know about what, the set of choices is around austerity and, and what the kind of effects of austerity are. Mm. I mean, that was very much something that that motivated um, writing the book in the first place is sort of seeing the uh, effects of austerity on the one hand and also looking into the ways in which austerity is kind of wielded as a kind of ideological weapon. You know, the sort of technical term for austerity is fiscal consolidation, which which is actually really euphemistic, you know, sort of this idea that you're sort of consolidating uh, finances when actually um, what's happening is uh, massive cuts to to public expenditure that have direct effects on people's lives. So the idea sort of, if we think about, you know, the idea of austerity from above, so to speak, is that the measures are meant to reduce budget deficits and in this way governments can sort of demonstrate their fiscal discipline and and be considered creditworthy. 
but also there have been sort of economic theories that have set, suggested that high public public deficits can lead to low growth and to instability and crisis. But these are theories that actually have been refuted. You know, we were told that austerity was necessary to rebuild confidence in national economies after the financial crisis, attract investment and create jobs. But even IMF economists have had to concede that austerity doesn't work, that it that it doesn't necessarily provide the desired economic boost. It and sort of pointing to evidence of shrinking economic output, increased unemployment, heightened welfare costs, and and sharpening inequality. So, um, and that's kind of my my point also in the book, like the effects of austerity are not fully grasped by just tallying up aggregate figures, you know, so we've saved this much and and that much, but but actually understanding the consequences um, of austerity. So on the one hand, I think, and, and for me also in the book, there are sort of two elements to this. On the one hand, austerity has cuts to um, social security, so the restructuring of universal credit, cuts to in-work benefits and disability allowances, um, also cuts to local councils, um, which when it comes to care is actually really very significant because the responsibility for social care lies with local authorities. So uh, uh, austerity um, as budget cuts uh, at the level of uh, local authorities, which have been up to uh, 60% over the last decade, means that uh, there aren't enough funds to provide adequate services. So, for example, with like, home care providers handing back contracts or also the um, uh, means testing and these sorts of things being um, implemented very, very harshly and people sort of not being able to access uh, care services, not being uh, provided working conditions uh, worsening. So all of these, all of these aspects are, are very real and, and, and felt in their materialist, uh, material effect. But the other aspect is also regressive tax reforms. And I think this is something that isn't spoken about so much uh, when we talk about austerity is actually we've seen the sort of uh, terrible effects for people on, on lower incomes, but at the same time, the sort of redistributing wealth Upwards. So actually, when you do look at the aggregate figures, you see that um, spending hasn't all in all changed that much. But actually, when we look at who the money is being taken from, we see that it's actually the lower echelons of uh, lower income uh, echelons where the, the money is being taken because you've had sort of tax cuts for the wealthy increases to uh, that, which always hits um, poor people and poor, uh, poorer people more. Um, and at the same time, things like reducing Reducing corporation tax, etc. So I think it's sort of on the one hand the issue of cuts, but on the other hand also the ways in which wealth is being uh, redistributed upwards. And of course, where austerity uh, hits is more and more people are pushed towards uh, really having nobody else other than themselves to rely on. So it's not just an ideology of sort of individual responsibility, that becomes a sort of real uh, uh, material reality for many people. And, and essentially, that you know, responsibility and material reality is um, a, a demand that care be done by volunteers. And and one one of the things you you talk through in one of the middle chapters of the book is the process of privatization, not you know privatization or a double privatization, but actually a, a triple privatization whereby um, the, the state you know not just contracts out um, responsibility to um, private for profit companies. But also, you know, the very idea of um, kind of 
care being something that is, you know, supposed to be provided for by the states and also is, you know, a kind of labor that needs, you know, skills and, and remuneration is just essentially sort of reframed as a volunteer activity that individuals, families should be providing for themselves. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, on the one hand, there's a sort of, con, you know, the conservative uh, ideology is is the idea that sort of families, um, uh, families are responsible for care. And obviously what feminists point out is that in the way that um, that is conceived is it uh, rests on the on the shoulders of, of women. And, and I think structurally what we can see is that the responsibility for caring is sort of systematically handed down a kind of societal care chain of paid, underpaid and unpaid labour. Um, and this is a kind of core structural feature of capitalist economies that many feminists have, have uh, pointed to. But of course, it becomes even more uh, astute in situations where we sit, where restructurings are happening. So in the situation of austerity, what was um, of interest to me was to show um, or well, to ask the question, first of all, to whom exactly uh, is this uh, care work being offloaded to? And um, also the ways in which uh, uh, the sort of pursuit of profitability actually goes hand in hand with the devaluation of the, the work of care, either by making the work invisible or by offloading its costs. So I kind of came up with this idea of triple privatization, which uh, builds on uh, existing feminist theorizations of reprivatization of social reproduction in the, the context of uh, neoliberal restructuring and what some feminists have called a kind of double privatization. So you have sort of welfare state retrenchment, the, re the reduction of uh, public infrastructures, which on the one hand means that it doesn't mean that the sort of care needs go away. It means that uh, the work has to be done by somebody else so often this is then within families uh women who have to take on more uh more work um but also that this can mean particularly where say we have seen greater labor market participation of women they might not necessarily the sort of traditional role of the housewife and mother um has has, has shifted somewhat and women might not necessarily be available in the same ways as they they have been in the past and there is a kind of interpolation if you so well of uh, volunteers of the community so uh, you know David Cameron's idea of the big society was very much uh, along these lines um, or when people today also talk about uh, the, the compassion of, uh, of society of communities and kind of volunteers stepping in to, to plug to plug gaps uh, in in provision. So, for example, think about in in uh, hospitals, volunteers coming in to um, to read to patients, to help with with tasks that not that are not necessarily um, where not necessarily professional, qualified, trained uh, staff would be necessary. And in that way, they are. Um, sort of alleviating uh, the time uh, and resource pressures that, that exist in this context of scarce resources. So I wanted to uh, shine a light also on that aspect of uh, privatization. And of course, the other aspect of privatization is the commodification and marketization of care services, which means that only those who actually can afford 
can afford these services can pay for them and those that can't have to do the work themselves. And added to that, of course, the issue of the question of who is actually uh, providing these services and uh, paid conditions and, um, and, and what their work looks like. So there's a sort of different ways in which privatization uh, takes an effect. And also where we see privatization happening and the marketization of care services, the ways in which attempts at rendering these kinds of services profitable and creating economies of scale also has brought with it sort of pressures on uh, care services. So more care, more people being needed to be cared for in uh, less time, um, reductions in wages and working conditions, precarization, these sorts of things happening as a, as a result of trying to render these kinds of services uh, profitable for, for uh, private businesses. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I mean, this, you mentioned the kind of workers' uh, conditions there, and this is not just a story of, uh, what would the language be, you know, service users and, and workers. But but it's also, I think, a broader uh, social story. And, and one of the things you get into later on in the book um, is the idea of even, you know, kind of prevention and preventative med- uh, measures that would um, arrest, you know, the need for kind of critical care interventions. Even they um, have taken on these kinds of individualized, privatized and kind of for-profit um structures that, that we see in the rest of, of the care sector and, and you know throughout contemporary society. And, and I wonder if you could give me a few examples about you know the kind of the, almost the sort of the trick or the um you know now the kind of uh, the cruel face of, of preventative measures and how they reinforce the care crisis. Mm. I mean, prevention is a tricky one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, of course, uh, any you know, we would all agree that it is better to prevent uh, something bad from happening and then to let it happen and then mop up later. And I think that becomes sort of wielded ideologically uh, often in, in many ways to sort of... Um, focus on on prevention uh, as opposed to providing care services there where the emphasis is particularly on um, uh, on 
how to put this uh maybe i started from a different from a different point so um one of the things that that becomes important with this idea of of prevention is precisely that um care needs are are costly and particularly that there are perhaps avoidable care needs such as illnesses that stem from from smoking obesity excessive alcohol consumption and other ramifications of unhealthy lifestyles so the thinking in behind that is that a reduction of health and social care needs in the population saves money and reduces the burden on on public infrastructures for for health and and social care um, as well as on welfare and and social security spending so the fewer people need care the less the less costly it is um, now that's all very well and good but at the same time of course there's a whole uh, there, there are two issues there first of all there is nonetheless still many care needs that exist that can't be sort of mitigated, you know, prevented away. So uh, prevention isn't uh, the, the, the solution for everything. And the other thing is also that here, uh, with this focus on prevention, there also comes, uh, again, the sort of introduction of a, the, the sort of personal, individualized responsibility for unhealthy lifestyles and a way in which uh, social dis- disadvantage, class disadvantage, um, things of poverty and inequality get sort of transcribed onto this register of personal responsibility. So if you have um, uh, certain kind of illnesses, then it's uh, it's your responsibility. You did something to uh, be in this situation. It's also your responsibility to find a way out. And um, here, what I became very interested in, in the wake of uh, austerity measures, was that uh, the, the introduction of things like social investment and social impact bonds that were being implemented in areas where that also included sort of prevention um, of social problems like uh, things like uh, um, uh, the situation for people who are particularly disadvantaged to do with their health, but also isolation uh, in the older age, mental health issues, and things also like recidivism or young people not being in education, uh, employment or training. So lots of issues that uh, actually have to do with inequality and, and structural disadvantage being sort of funneled into this register of personal responsibility and uh, prevention on, on the one hand. So um, uh, pr- programs that sort of help people to change their own situation um, and coupled with this sort of new private finance um, that is being used to um organize these uh, to fund these projects where then uh, some like social impact bonds you have a consortium that is uh, then involved with um sort you know addressing a social problem that then um you get private finance for that and if you solve the problem as the consortium then private finance gets a return on investment and um for me this just seemed to reinforce the idea that not only the kind of structural issues that lead to the problems in the first place are sort of uh you know rendered invisible but also it was the people themselves the individuals who are you know who who are bearing the brunt of these structural problems that become responsibilized and then also in 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 turn a uh, source of uh, profiteering for private finance so there's a whole sort of various layers here um, that are problematic and what does this mean for 
kind of us as, as individuals and you, you know you sort of get into right at the very end of the book um the kind of modern um in some ways you know really affirmative and really important um idea of self-care but at the same time there are particular you know sort of um heavy psychological negatives um about the care crisis as it plays out um on an individual level Mm. Well, first of all, I think um, there's a sort of way in which um, a kind of economy of abandonment marries with um, the sort of financialized capitalism. So on the one hand, you have a situation in which, um, you know, you've got to take care of yourself because there's nobody else that's going to take care of you. And um, and and also uh, where the, the structures of care are sort of falling away, um, all you have is your capacity to work. And if, uh, and if something happens to you and you can't work, then you don't have a source of income. So, you know, so, that, so these are things that, that are sources of anxiety in and of themselves. And that's one aspect. But the other aspect is also the, the sort of idea that you're, you're an asset, you're a financial asset, your capacities are financial assets that you need to invest in and optimize and, and uh, keep improving and and all the while the sort of underlying that is of course the suggestion that you're never good enough that you always have to keep doing more and better and 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 staying on top of things and so that in itself also fuels uh anxiety so i was kind of interested in unpacking that and understanding how that works and and the ways in which self-care um then becomes a sort of labor on the self of sort of in you know investing in the self and and um uh keeping your keeping your labor capacity going and uh and managing these the you know it's a sort of crisis a sort of individualized personalized crisis management strategy at the same time and there i was also interested in the ways in which this sort of um, this again is kind of uh, fusing together with ideas, uh, sort of critiques of uh, the sort of industrial production. Um, so we see now the sort of rise of clean cosmetics and uh, clean eating and um, uh, buying products that are that, that don't cause harm in, in in some some form or another. And and I was interested in this because it seemed to me that it really reflected. The, the kind of um, so that capitalist realism that that Mark Fisher, for example, also spoke about that that the ways in which the sort of solutions to the the problems that are being identified, even the problems with the way that capitalism uh, functions, are. Uh, they are also being thrown back on the individual has to, who has to sort of manage their own anxieties around what might be in the food or what might be in in the in the products and in in managing that anxiety can only do that through a sort of uh, consumption or entrepreneurism so it's a sort of market orientated uh, solutions and so that's really what I was trying to unpack by shining a light on the ways in which on the one hand it seems that there is a crisis of this kind of neoliberal subject that that is supposed to be constantly self-optimizing but even that crisis management uh, is sort of re rechanneled back into uh, the same kinds of uh, solutions that actually got us into the, the mess in the first place. So what, what do we do to, to get out of the mess? You know, how do we value care? How do we remove uh, the kind of financial and financialized incentives? Uh, how do we make it more democratic? 
Good question. Well, I think, first of all, the issue is really to stress that care isn't a luxury good. Like, it's not, it's not optional. It's not something um, that you uh, can get if you can pay for it. Everyone needs to be cared for and everyone needs access to care, even if everyone doesn't have the same needs. And I think here also is something that, that really came to, to light in the, in the pandemic, something that feminists uh, have long stressed also, that our lives are interdependent and, um, and that really needs to, needs to be acknowledged. But that also means that we need to really value care. So yeah, valuing care means, of course, allocating more resources, uh, more collective resources to that and in terms of funding for infrastructures, um, whether that is uh, through uh, progressive taxation, um, through really funding good public infrastructures, um, but not, of course, and I think this is this is also um, a key issue that we have to really be aware of in the current debates, that we also need to um, regulate and reform the privatization of of care because if we simply provide more money for privatized services then we're not dealing with the ways in which that uh profit motive and the kinds of business models that are being applied to care are also inappropriate and actually sucking resources out so um here allocating more resources uh, has to go hand in hand with with dismantling this apparatus of private wealth extraction i.e through um through reform and, and regulation but it also means um elevating the sort of undervalued political and ethical status of uh, of care and allocating more uh, more time for care. So uh, this means re- reclaiming time also from from waged work um, in our own personal lives, while at the same time thinking about the ways in which. Uh, we need better care for for care workers, so secure employment conditions, adequate remuneration, they include sick pay, holiday pay, pay for overtime, uh, materials and resources that are required, as well as training and 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 further qualification. You know, collective bargaining and recognition of trade unions. These are all ways in which uh, that that can happen. And uh, but I think for me also thinking across the. Um, paid and unpaid care uh, work is really important. So as I already said, like reclaiming time from wage work to to care for one another obviously doesn't mean just um, uh, uh, falling back on the usual suspects to to do care, but actually redistributing that care work and thinking also beyond the nuclear family. Um, So ideas about commoning uh, care, uh, developing new kinds of uh, arrangements and networks uh, for care that spill out of uh, the individual household and the nuclear family, I think are really important. And of course, here, democracy is is really key. So I'm quite interested in the local level, also the sort of municipal level, as um, a space in which we can think of sort of real innovation rather than commercial experimentation in ways in which we reorganize uh, care in terms of also the participation of people in in actually uh, having their care needs met, but also taking seriously the uh, needs of those who are uh, providing care, not just uh, paid care workers, but also informal carers. I mean, I'm very conscious of, you, you talked earlier about, you know, the sort of demands the contemporary uh, neoliberal capitalist society places on us to, you know, do more, do 
do better, you know, to constantly be thinking we're not able to kind of do enough. And, and so my, my final question um, really seems to fly in the face in that, which is what are you working on now? <laughs> what, what kind of comes after the Care Crisis book? But, but I guess the Care Crisis is the culmination of, of you know, a much longer project and, it, it, you know, it's worth kind of flagging. There's uh, a huge amount of uh, engagement with people's experiences and, you know, you've, you've been in spaces of care and you, you talk to people. Um, and, and in some ways, um, I, I guess the question is, the extent to which you've got um, more sort of work to do around care or you've got, you know, a different set of, of interests and projects to be developed? Um, yeah, thanks for that question, because I think, uh, and also thanks for the way that you kind of led into it, because I do think that actually part of uh, part of what what is a sort of general task for us all is to uh, to to slow to slow down and and allow for for more time and not um, particularly also in the in the context of academic work as well and sort of um, uh, not overburdening ourselves all the, all of the time. Um, that's one aspect. But in terms of my sort of concrete concrete projects, um, I'm certainly continuing to to work on this issue of care. I think there's still a lot to do, and obviously I'm not the only one working on care there are lots of people that, that are doing so um, but one of the things that, it, that interests me in in particular is trying to understand the ways in which the pandemic um, is or isn't a catalyst for change and what openings there are to really um, change the, the situation and improve the situation I think that, that's one aspect but also I um, mean one of the, the sort of key concepts that I develop in the book is this idea of the care fix so this sort of short-term uh, the problem of these kind of short-term fixes that that sort of paper over uh, the the structural problems, um, displace the the, the problems, uh, displace the crisis, and and here I think we we also need to be attentive to the ways in which care is also continuing to be of interest, also as kind of a new avenue for. Um, uh, financialization and and commodification and so I think that the the, the tension right now is around a, a growing awareness that something needs to be done and a political conflict around what those solutions are going to look like and so I want to obviously uh, understand the, the dynamics of this and also contribute to um pushing things in in the right direction which to me is has everything to do with social justice